1751, just five years after the British Army defeated the final Jacobite uprising at Culloden Moor, General James Wolfe, who had participated in that battle and the brutal harrying of the clans afterward, wrote a letter recommending Highland troops to fight a French-backed insurgency by the Wabanaki Confederacy in Nova Scotia. He said, I should imagine that two or three independent Highland companies might be of use. They are hardy, intrepid, accustomed to a rough country, and no great mischief if they fall. Eight years on, in 1759, General Wolfe lay dying on the Plains of Abraham before the key French-Canadian city of Quebec. His army had scaled the cliffs to the city in the night and uh, surprised the French garrison and crushed General Montcalm's French force in open battle, securing the city and ultimately all of Canada for the British crown in the climactic, though not final, battle of the French and Indian War. Among the British troops who won the day and military immortality for Wolfe was a contingent of Fraser Highlanders. Throughout the French and Indian War and in Pontiac's rebellion that followed it, Highland troops fought with exceptional bravery and uh, proved Wolf right about their hardihood and intrepidity. And just as, as uh, Wolf's callous remarks would suggest, they, uh, they also took disproportionate casualties. The British Army overall suffered a casualty rate of 9% in the French and Indian War. And the Highland regiments that were raised for that war had a casualty rate of 32%. So clearly, the entire British military command structure and political structure figured that it was no great mischief when Highlanders fell in battle. So that raises a question for us. How is it that in just a few short years, so many of the wild, savage Highlanders that had fought so bitterly against the, the British army in the Jacobite rebellion of the, of the 45 threatening to take London for the Jacobite cause. Um, how, how is it that they became some of the Hanoverian king's finest soldiers and were willing to bleed out for the cause of the British Empire? So the creation of Highland regiments wasn't a new thing. It didn't happen after Culloden. The Black Watch, um, which is famous to this day, um, although its regimental history is is not a, a straight line, but uh, it was formed in, in 1725 as a kind of clan militia to patrol the highlands on behalf of the king. It was a pro-government regiment, obviously, um, and uh, made up of, of pro-government clansmen. And, uh, but its duties weren't confined to patrolling in Scotland. It was shipped out to the continent and fought with great distinction at the Battle of Fontenoy in 1745, not long before the uh, Jacobite Rebellion. That was during the uh, the War of Austrian Succession, one of the multitude of, of European uh, dynastic conflicts that, uh, that marked the 18th century. Um, and uh, they, they fought very bravely and, and earned great distinction at the, the Battle of Fontenoy, which was a, a significant uh, battle between 
the British and their allies and the French and theirs on the on the continent. William Pitt the Elder was uh, functionally Great Britain's prime minister in uh, at the time that the the Fr- French and Indian War, which would be known as the Seven Years' War in Europe, uh, broke out and was conducted. And he was kind of the key man in in winning that war for the British Empire. Um, Pitt recognized a critical need for military manpower, and he knew where to find it in the Highlands of Scotland. He said, I found there a hardy race of men able to do the country service, but laboring under a proscription. I called them forth to her aid and sent them forth to fight her battles. They did not disappoint my expectations for the fidelity was equal to their valor. When Pitt is referring to laboring under a proscription, he's talking about the Disarming Act of, of 1747, which took away the arms of the Highlanders and forbade them from wearing the kilt or playing the bagpipes. And it was, as we talked about in the, the previous episode, it was a, a, a genuine effort at, uh, at crushing the Highland culture that uh, was was seen by the the British establishment as as the hotbed of, of Jacobitism, and as long as the Highlanders were a warrior culture, they would always pose a threat to to the British government. So in 1747, they passed this act, which banned their carrying of arms and uh, and the playing of the pipes, the wearing of the kilt, and the, the penalties were pretty severe. There were, were jail terms associated with uh, first offense and then transportation to the colonies for uh, subsequent offenses. And, and they weren't talking about transport to the nice places in the colonies. They were talking about uh, transportation to the, uh, the Sugar Islands or the Southern colonies and, and under, under harsh conditions of, of, virtual slave labor. So uh, the, the Disarming Act was a, was a significant prescription, and, uh, and Pitt offered a way around it for the, uh, for the Highlanders. Uh, as a warrior culture, this prescription was an assault on their identity. So they, uh, they had the opportunity to join the British Army and have their arms restored to them or the ability to carry arms restored to them and the ability to wear their traditional dress or, or a uniform version of it. And, uh, and famously, the, the regiments were allowed to, to have the bagpipes. And this was a recovery of their, of their dignity and their sense of purpose and their sense of identity. So many, many Highland young men uh, took the king's shilling, as they say, and, and joined up. Um, it's not an unusual example of a conquered people who chose to serve in the military of the conqueror. Uh, you find in, in North American frontier history that many Indian tribesmen served as scouts for the U.S. Army because it was a way of maintaining their, their warrior tradition and, and ethos. There was also, of course, a, a significant economic component to it, um, to the decision to, to serve in the military. When the clan system was broken down, it, that coincided with the advent of the Industrial Revol- Revolution and uh, capitalist 
modes of production, including in agriculture. And agriculture was becoming, uh, as they say, rationalized. And it just simply became more profitable to run sheep on clan lands than to maintain the people there. And over a period of decades, Highlanders were forced off the lands that, that their families had traditionally lived on over periods of centuries in what came to be known as the, the Highland Clearances. And it's important to, to recognize that, it, that this was not something that was imposed by the British government, and, and it wasn't the British government that enforced the clearances. It was the clan chieftains who, through the after Culloden and through the late 18th and early 19th century, became landlords and captains of industry. And their, the sense of, of two-way obligation with their clansmen almost entirely broke down and um, and they they simply moved people off the land to put it into more more profitable use which was was raising sheep for uh, for wool and and for mutton so a great many Highlanders were forced into cities like Glasgow um, which was becoming a, a more industrialized city gradually you know not not the smokestack industries that we we think of from the mid to late Victorian era, but nevertheless, uh, these were uh, the cities of of North Britain were starting to uh, reflect the early advent of the Industrial Revolution, and a lot of Highlanders migrated to those cities looking for for work, and uh, a great many were forced to emigrate either to North America or to other colonial lands in the British Empire. In the period we're talking about, it was mostly to, to North America. And so, like poor men everywhere and for all time, uh, a lot of young Highland men found that military service was their only real economic option, their only real prospect. So, for a combination of these economic and cultural reasons, Highland men joined the, the British Army in great numbers. And uh, that was a trend that would continue well into the 20th century. Colin Calloway, in his great book, White People, Highlanders, and Indians, which I've obviously uh, raided for uh, the purposes of this, uh, and raided and, and looted for the purposes of this podcast, couldn't do this without this book. Um, Calloway quotes a a contemporary source that noted that uh, during the Seven Years' War, more Highlanders wore the king's red coat than ever followed the Stuart, Stuart Prince. In 1757, which was right at the height of the, the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, there were 3,867 Scots soldiers and NCOs and 207 Scots officers in America. And that represented twenty-five, or um, rather, twenty-seven point five percent and thirty-one percent, thirty-one point five percent, respectively, of the total British force. So they were more than a quarter of the the troops that that fought the French and Indian War, and uh, a third of the officer corps. And uh, as as mentioned, and as per James Wolfe's. Uh, dictum that uh, no great it would be no great mischief if they fell. 
they were in the thick of the fighting and they they bore the brunt of British losses. They were really essentially treated as cannon fodder. And there's no no better evidence of that than the disastrous July 8, 1758 assault on the French Fort Carillon, which the British and Indians called uh, Fort Ticonderoga which is on Lake Champlain in northern New York. Now, that, that fort was strategically vital because in the days of the French and, and Indian War and also on into the Revolution, the, the chain of lakes um, that uh, Lake Champlain was a, was a part of ran directly from Canada to into New York, and uh, it offered a, a highway for for the military and uh, a way of, of moving relatively quickly and easily in a uh, in terrain that was very rugged and had very few roads. So control of those lakes was really, really vital. And uh, the French controlled Fort Carillon, we know as, as Ticonderoga, which commanded Lake Champlain. So it was important that the British take it. And... Uh, so a British general named James Abercrombie was tasked with, with capturing the fort. Um, he was a really talented organizer and logistician and put together a very potent expedition. But unfortunately for the British, he was a lousy, vacillating, and, and very uncreative battlefield commander. So... Uh, the way the campaign unfolded, uh, Rogers Rangers, the famous uh, frontier raiding force that uh, was put together by the, the Scots-Irish frontiersman Robert Rogers, um, a New Hampshire man, um, and some British light infantry pushed forward and made, some, made contact with, with French skirmishers, and they, they gave better than they got, and, uh, and the stage was set for the, the full assault on on the fort, um, which was not very, very heavily manned by the French, although it was, was under the command of the, the French main commander, the Marquis de Montcalm. Um, Abercrombie couldn't think of, of a more creative way to take the fort than to simply assault head on against its walls. And so, um, you know, it was a scene that, that really resembles the, the slaughter of the British Army at the Somme in, in 1916, where they just went over the top and got mowed down. Abercrombie sent his troops headlong into a, 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 a well-prepared position, which was fortified with a tangle of, of downed trees and wooden spikes. And they really couldn't even get to the, the walls of the of the fort. And so they sent in wave after wave of these heartbreakingly brave British troops who got hung up in the obstacles and mowed down by sheets of musket fire. Um, again, you know, just, it, it's not on the same scale and, and intensity as, as the British troops getting caught in the barbed wire and mowed down by machine guns at the Somme in 1916, but it's certainly very, very similar. And for the troops that were caught in it, um, probably felt much the same, terrifying and, and futile. Um, 
the Indian allies of the the British were not having any of this kind of warfare. They uh, they did not engage. They refused to engage and uh, hunkered down on the slopes of, of Rattlesnake Mountain, which was nearby, and and just kind of blazed away at the at the fort without much effect. And they were wise to stay out of it because all of the attacks, which were unsupported by artillery fire, um, just completely and bloodily failed. The unit that suffered the worst in this mindless slaughter was the 42nd Highlanders, the Black Watch. Uh, Only 12 years after the Battle of Culloden and the crushing of the clans, the 42nd was carrying on the, the Highland warrior tradition in the service of the empire and in the process suffering 50% casualties. And all told, out of the entire British force, about a 1,000 men were killed before the ramparts of Fort Carrion. Um, a Lieutenant Grant of the 42nd Highlanders left a, a memoir of the, the events. And I'm going to quote him at length. The attack began a little past one in the afternoon, and about two, the fire became general on both sides, which was exceedingly heavy and without any intermission, insomuch that the oldest soldier present never saw so furious and incessant a fire. The affair at Fontenoy was nothing to it, I saw both. We labored under insurmountable difficulties. The enemy's breastwork was about nine or ten feet high, upon the top of which they had plenty of wall pieces fixed and which was well lined in the inside with small arms. But the difficult access to their lines was what gave them a fatal advantage over us. They took care to cut down monstrous large oak trees, which covered all the ground from the foot of their breastwork about the distance of a cannon shot every way on their front. This not only broke our ranks and made it impossible for us to keep our order, but put it entirely out of our power to advance until we cut our way through. I have seen men behave with courage and resolution before now, but so much determined bravery can hardly be equaled in any part of the history of ancient Rome. Even those that were mortally wounded cried aloud to their companions not to mind or to lose a thought upon them, but to follow their officers and to mind the honor of their country. Nay, their ardor was such that it was difficult to bring them off. They paid dearly for their intrepidity. The remains of the regiment had the honor to cover the retreat of the army and brought off the wounded as we did at Fontenoy. When shall we have so fine a regiment again? I hope we shall be allowed to recruit. The British Army's Indian allies seemed to like and respect the Highlanders and they helped carry the Black Watch wounded off the field at Carrion. Frontier service brought the two peoples together and they often found common ground. This is from Calloway again. Officers and men cultivated relations with Indian women. Some learned their language, and a few even dressed and painted like Indians. Highland soldiers serving in Indian country often replaced shoes with moccasins, wore leggings under kilts, carried tomahawks in place of broadswords, and used powder horns sometimes carried by a quillwork strap made by an Indian woman. Close encounters meant that Highland soldiers were not always blind to their common humanity with the Indian people or to some shared experiences. Indians who were opposed to the British learned to respect the fighting prowess of the Highlanders. 
1763, after the British victory in the French and Indian War, General Jeffrey Amherst, who was the uh, commander-in-chief in North America and who absolutely loathed Indians, imposed a policy of austerity, cutting way back on the diplomatic presence and trade goods that uh, the British and, and the French also had provided to the tribes. And uh, they thought of this as, uh, Amherst thought of this as, as bribing the Indians for their good favor and felt that it was no longer necessary. The, uh, the native people saw this entirely differently. These were gifts of, of respect and diplomatic, um, you know, part of the diplomatic culture of, of the wilderness. And uh, they were also at this point totally dependent on European trade goods including guns and powder and ball. And that was necessary to their economic survival. They were very linked into the fur trade, and they, they hunted and traded furs for, um, for all sorts of, of necessities of life. So many of the native peoples who had uh, accepted the British victory in the French and Indian War saw the British policy as an attack on them. And a loose confederation of of native peoples led by the Ottawa war chief Pontiac and a Seneca named Gaiasuta rose in a a potent insurgency that's come to be known as as Pontiac's Rebellion. Um, It really wasn't commanded by by Pontiac. Um, He was... uh, one of of several leaders, but this was this was a very potent insurgency, and it nearly drove the British out of the Trans Appalachian West that they had just conquered from France. the uh, The insurgents took every British post in the Ohio and and Northwest Great Lakes territory, except for Detroit at the Great Lakes and Fort Pitt at the Forks of the Ohio, which is where Pittsburgh is today. So in in the summer of 1763, a Swiss mercenary fighting for Great Britain named Henri Bouquet mustered a scratch force to march to the relief of Fort Pitt, which was loosely besieged by these uh, native insurgents. And it was comprised almost entirely of Highland troops, most of whom had uh, just returned to North America from a campaign that was part of the Seven Years' War in the Caribbean. And uh, they were considerably worse the wear, um, beat up and, and, uh, and suffering from a variety of, of tropical illnesses when Bouquet marched them off into the forest. And on August 5th, 1763, Bouquet's force was ambushed by a contingent of Shawnee, Delaware, and Mingo, which was what uh, a name for Ohio Seneca uh, Indians. Uh, they were ambushed in, in the western Pennsylvania woods at a place called Bushy Run. And Bouquet's troops were, were badly mauled in that initial encounter um, as a 465-man force, and they took 60 casualties in that, that first ambush encounter. But they didn't run. They, uh, they camped overnight, uh, and secured themselves in a kind of a field expedient rampart of, of flour sacks, which they were bringing to Fort Pitt. And uh, they, they had reasonable fear that they would be overrun and slaughtered in the morning. 
But Bouquet was a, a very canny and experienced commander, and his Highlanders were tough and experienced and disciplined troops. And when the Indians attacked them in the morning, Bouquet executed a false retreat. He pulled his his center back in apparent confusion and rout, and the Shawnee and Delaware and, and Mingo poured in after them in pursuit, and they ran right into a kill box. The troops on the flanks poured musket fire in on them from two sides, and then that, that center contingent reversed their retreat and charged in with the bayonet. And uh, the, the woodland Indian peoples did not fight in that style, and they, they had no, no stomach for it, no interest in it. It, was, it. it took away all of their advantages, and so they just immediately uh, broke and, and fled the field. They, they weren't terribly damaged in terms of, of body count, um, but they were, were pretty sorely demoralized. They they'd thought that they had this relief force uh, penned in and, and were going to slaughter them as they had other British contingents many times during the French and Indian Wars, and, and they were defeated. The Highlanders themselves were badly beaten up. They had 50 dead and 60 wounded, which is about a quarter of their force, um, which you know the way the the way combat effectiveness is calculated that's a a, a a a force that should have been rendered combat ineffective by that kind of loss but they held the field and they were able to relieve fort pitt and so it was a very significant battle kind of a turning point in pontiac's rebellion because the the ohio tribes in particular had been um, really badly stung by the defeat and it kind of took the impetus out of the rebellion bouquet spoke most highly of the highlanders who won that sharp fight in the wilderness the highlanders are the bravest men i ever saw the old soldier said their behavior in that obstinate affair does them the highest honor. Highland regiments like the Black Watch would go on to fight for King George III in the American Revolution as part of the, the British Army trying to put down the rebellion in the American colonies. But many of the Highlanders who fought in that conflict were actually American settlers by this time who had fought... They, they fought as loyalist militia. And that's, that's another apparent anomaly that, that needs some explanation. You would think that it would seem natural that the Highlanders in America would gladly take up arms in the rebellion against the Crown in 1775, started at Lexington and Concord. But that was generally not the case. Of course, there were Highlanders who did fight for the, the rebel or patriot cause. But uh, many Highlanders, and pro probably most of them, in fact, were loyalists. And there are, are several reasons for this. Um, one is simply the, the, just the fact that they were rebels in Scotland didn't mean that they were, were Republicans or, you know, small r, Republicans or um, thought it was appropriate to throw off the yoke of a king. It's important to remember that the Jacobite Rebellion was about restoring one dynasty 
to the throne of Scotland and England over another one. It wasn't about getting out from under the authority of kings in general. Um, so I, th- I think that that's probably a, a factor. The, the culture was, was a relatively conservative one, and, and many Highlanders used language that described the, uh, the unnatural rebellion of the American colonies. So I, th- I think that that's a, a, a legitimate consideration. Another reason is that, that they simply that they'd rebuilt lives after a devastating defeat at the hands of, of Great Britain. And even if they might have harbored some notion of revenge, they were, I think, disinclined to risk a second trauma and another forlorn hope of a rebellion. I mean, you know, looking backward, it seems inevitable that the American colonies would win their independence, but that was far from clear all the way up really until 1781 when the uh, American and French allied forces won the battle at Yorktown. So, you know, all along, really through almost all of the American Revolution, it was it was not clear at all that the Americans would prevail. And uh, it would stands to reason that the, the Highlanders didn't want to be on the losing end of a rebellion for yet another time. And uh, I think it, it, it must be said that the Highlanders just seem to have accepted themselves as part of, of Great Britain under the rule of the Hanoverian kings by the 1770s. And uh, another factor that, that has to be taken into consideration, and, and I think is very significant, is that many of them had taken an oath of loyalty. And this is a culture that took oaths very seriously, far more seriously than, than uh, our casual promises are kept today. Um, they took an oath of loyalty to the Hanoverian kings, to King George, and they chose not to break that oath. We're going to cover this ground in, in a great deal more detail in an upcoming series on the Loyalist Frontier Partisans. This is a, a subject that I find really endlessly fascinating. Um, but we'll take a short jaunt down the trail with the Highlanders of the Mohawk Valley right now. Um, the Mohawk Valley runs uh, west to east in western New York. And in the 1760s, this very rich terrain, which was the the homeland of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois League, um, was for all intents and purposes almost a personal fiefdom of Sir William Johnson, who was Britain's superintendent of Indian affairs for the Northern Colonies. He's Johnson is is an absolutely extraordinary figure, and I'm sure we'll encounter him again more than once in in this podcast. He was of Irish descent, um, of a family who uh, uh, originally McShane, who had uh, anglicized their name to Johnson and uh, become. Uh, converts to Protestantism, which was necessary if you were going to have any kind of of social or economic standing in Ireland. And he came into the Mohawk Valley in the 1740s to manage the estates of his uncle, Peter Warren, and uh, ended up establishing a a trading empire 
and exceptionally close relations with the Mohawk people. And uh, by the end of the French and Indian War, he was a baronet and had established a, a kind of, of Celtic chieftainship on very extensive land holdings. He owned a, a tremendous chunk of the, the Mohawk Valley outright and had a tremendous amount of influence over um, every aspect, the, the economic, cultural, and, and social life of the rest of the Mohawk Valley. And Johnson welcomed a large contingent of exiled Catholic Highlanders uh, during the 1760s to settle on his lands. And the setup there was pretty congenial for for the Highlanders. Um, you know, Johnson was an Anglican, but he was religiously tolerant. Now, he didn't. He had nothing against Catholics, um, and his style of patronage very strongly resembled the old style relation of the of the Highland clans and their chiefs. So he gave the Highlanders a place in the Mohawk Valley, and just as in the old style clan system, they gave him a very personal kind of loyalty. Now, Johnson was a crown man all the way. He was a British official, after all, and, uh, and when tensions between Great Britain and her American colonies began to increase in the early 1770s, Johnson's Highlanders came to be regarded as kind of a protection squad for, for Johnson and his family. Richard Burleth addresses this in, in his uh, book on the New York frontier during the French and Indian War and the American Revolution. It's one of my all-time favorite frontier history books titled Bloody Mohawk. And Burleth says, Scottish Highlanders... Refugees from persecution by British authorities had flocked to the valley during the previous decades. Though often Catholic and once strong supporters of the Stuart cause, the impoverished immigrants were offered homesteads on Sir William's extensive lands. Highland Scots saw eye to eye with Johnson's Irish, and time had shown that they could be loyal subjects to a Hanoverian monarch and no friend to rebels. The problem was that as 1773 turned into 1774, Highland Ruffians, heavily armed, seemed to appear as if on a signal in public spaces where crowds gathered. The Johnson party viewed them as their defense against mob violence and answered to incessant political brawlings in the local taverns. But to Valley people, these Highlanders often seemed hired henchmen, intent on intimidating anyone who would speak his mind. In one respect, they succeeded. Never during Sir William's lifetime was a liberty pole raised on the banks of the Mohawk. Sir William Johnson died in 1774, a year before the outbreak of the American Revolution with the, the shot heard around the world in Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts. Uh, when the war came to the Mohawk Valley, Johnson's son, Sir John Johnson, fled uh, with his loyal retainers to Canada. And that included the, the Highlanders who had settled on, on Johnson's lands in the Mohawk Valley. And they would ally themselves with Haudenosaunee warriors and return to the valley repeatedly with fire and sword in an effort to retake the, the lands that they'd lost. The Revolutionary War in the Mohawk Valley was really a civil war with former neighbors attacking former neighbors. 
And the Iroquois League fractured as some of them allied with the British and some allied with the American rebels or patriots. And others tried to maintain this precarious neutrality. And, um, you know, as I said, we'll, we'll talk in, in greater detail about that in a, in a subsequent uh, series on the Frontier Partisans podcast. But uh, Highlanders were a, an integral part of the Loyalist militias that uh, raided into the valley from uh, 1777 uh, through 1781. Um, in 1777, they were part of what would become known as the Saratoga Campaign, um, where the British sent an, an army down that chain of lakes that we talked about earlier from Canada toward Albany, New York. And another wing of the army moved west to east, or was to move west to east down the Mohawk Valley. And uh, the first step in that Mohawk Valley campaign was to lay siege to Fort Stanwix, which was at the, the western end of the valley. And Johnson and, and other British officers led a force of Iroquois warriors and Loyalist militia to ambush an American uh, militia force that had been sent to the relief of Fort Stanwix. And the Highland, Center, uh, the Highland settlers and militiamen, rangers, were in the thick of the, the Battle of Oriskany, which was where the, uh, the British ambushed that relief, relief force. And it was one of the bloodiest fights in the American Revolution. Virtually nobody's ever heard of it. But it was a, a very, very nasty fight. And Burleth describes the, the Highlanders in laying an ambush for their, their former neighbors. Sir John Johnson saw the 1st Battalion beginning to hunker down under the trees and judged the moment right to send an attack of Royal Yorkers straight down the road into their wavering line. He chose for the job Major Stephen Watts and his young Highlanders. Quote, Six were Grants, five McDonald's, four Rosses, three Murchisons, two Camerons, and two McPhersons, and others with names like McLean, Chisholm, Ferguson, and Urquhart. Before forming in the King's Royal New Yorkers, many of these men had followed Sir John out of the valley and over the Adirondacks to Montreal. They felt like, and indeed were, impoverished refugees, despised and exiled by German Protestant farmers whom they were now about to attack. Spoiler alert. The Loyalists and the Indian, their Indian allies lost the war. They were defeated in the American Revolution. And the Mohawk Valley Highlanders never did return to live in the Mohawk Valley. Most of them ended up in Canada with other exiled loyalists. And there, many of them would come, become major players in the fur trade with the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company. And that is the story we'll take up in the next episode of the Frontier Partisans podcast. There will be a one-week gap between this episode and that next one on the, the Highland Scots and the fur trade because I, I have been assigned a mission to haul treasure over the Misty Mountains cold next weekend and uh, I record these episodes uh, on the weekends. So uh, there will be that gap um, before we climb into the canoe and, and head out through the Canadian rivers into the, uh, into the wilds of Canada with a bunch of wild Scots engaged in, in securing 
pounds and pounds and thousands of pounds of, of beaver pelts for the, the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company. So I wanted to, uh, to give a shout out uh, to Gary Peterson, thanking him for his contribution to the Frontier Partisans podcast and blog. And uh, also tip of the hat to Paul McNamee, again, for his uh, ongoing support. He's our, our latest patron. And uh, I will be setting up uh, in, in March a, uh, a little drawing for a, uh, a bit of, of Frontier Partisans plunder for patrons and supporters of the podcast and, and the Frontier Partisans blog. So uh, one of you will, will arbitrarily end up with, with something cool. So I, uh, I always uh, appreciate the support and the interest in, the, in this history. It's uh, uh, my great pleasure to, to share my own passion for this, this history with all of you. And uh, any, uh, any questions or, or, uh, or thoughts or comments are always welcome at uh, frontierpartisan at gmail.com. And uh, you can support uh, Frontier Partisans podcast through our Patreon page. The link to that will be in the the show notes. And uh, we'll see you down the trail.